Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast on the Times. I'm Matt Chorley at a special live podcast recorded in Liverpool. This special episode, recorded while the Labour Party conference is going on in Liverpool, we're asking the question, have we reached peak Corbyn? Can Jeremy Corbyn build on the unexpected success at the general election last year to go on to become Prime Minister, or is it all downhill from here? Joining me on the panel, we've got Matt Zarb-Cousin, former spokesman for Jeremy Corbyn, Rachel Sylvester, Times columnist, and Jenny Russell, Times columnist, and Rosa Prince, biographer of both Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn, who can maybe compare the two leaders, the potential of both of them to basically muck it up over the next couple of years. Welcome to you all. Let's start with you, Matt. You worked for Jeremy Corbyn for some time in the, before the 2017 election. Explain a bit about what you expected to happen in the election, what then did happen, and how you think you might be able to build on that. Well, I think... Uh, oh, I, I actually expected... The, the, the polls would swing a lot to, to Labour in the course of the campaign. Uh, and towards the end, I think a couple of weeks before the election, I, I did think that it would be a hung parliament. I think I said it on your podcast at the time. Um, because I think, especially since 2008, I think people have seen their material circumstances decline quite significantly. And Brexit was a symptom of that in the sense that, um, well, I just think that Leave picked up a lot of votes because they were making a kind of anti-austerity argument about NHS funding and about you know, people felt a loss of control. They felt that their communities weren't being invested in. And I just, I just thought if, if, if we can put together a program, policy program, that demonstrates quite explicitly how we're going to improve the material circumstances of most people, we're going to take this money and we tax these people that have actually done quite well in the last eight years, you know, even though you haven't, uh, and we're going to we're going to transfer that wealth to to people. We're going to reinvest in public services, and if that message can cut through to people, because it did in a general election campaign, because the broadcast election rules kick in, and then obviously you had <laughs> a Conservative Party not really saying much, uh, which helped, but um, Labour able to announce policies every day and people actually engaged in politics. I thought that that was uh, going to be very work very much in their favour. And actually, Corbyn, Corbyn is necessary, a necessary component of that kind of politics, which creates an antagonism, because usually what 
um, politicians say and do in general election campaigns is they make politician statements which people don't, you know, which people can't possibly disagree with. So they say things like, <laughs> "I want everyone to fulfil their potential," or they'll say, uh, "You know, I want I want the economy to grow." Right? And and no one no one can disagree with these statements. But what Corbyn did in the election was he said he said things that people could in theory disagree with. He said, "I'm going to tax." corporations more, and I'm going to use that money to fund public services. Now, you can actually say, I don't think we should tax these people more, because I don't think we should fund in public services. And Corbyn is the first Labour politician in a long time to approach politics in that way. He's, he, he creates an antagonism, and he's not afraid to, try, to win the argument from his perspective. And do you think he can do that again? The, the question, have we, was that a peak uh, last year, or can he sort of recreate that and build on that again? Well, everyone's material circumstances are getting worse. The economy is getting worse. Uh, the context is, is perfect for those sorts of that sort of politics to work again. If anything, it, it will be better next time around. Uh, so. so let's bring you, Rachel, in. What, what do you make of it? Have we reached Pete Corbyn? I think Pete Corbyn was probably the Glastonbury uh, crowd when he was... Uh, chanted his name by an adoring crowd of young and enthusiastic fans. And there was, I think Matt's right, that he tapped into a real desire for change. Uh, and there was an optimism to his message and a radicalism that appealed especially to young people. Um, and that was sort of epitomized by that moment, really. But there was always, I think, and is, a darker side to the hard left that we've also seen coming out more recently in things like the anti-Semitism uh, and these called the mandatory reselections uh, and some of the really nasty abuse on Twitter. Um, and obviously that's not exclusively on the hard left, but it has been coming out. Um, so I think, uh, and then also there's been a, the sort of Corbyn himself has fallen out with those young idealistic supporters potentially, or there's a clash between them over Brexit and Europe. Um, so if you like the sort of happy, optimistic side of Corbyn and the darker side um, are becoming detached. Um, and the, the happy side is what created Pete Corbyn. Um, and the darker side is kind of, I think, is, is the greatest threat for him uh, and his success. But that doesn't mean necessarily that he's finished, because I think the problem is Theresa May and the Tories are making such an absolutely <laughs> massive hash of uh, the EU negotiations. You could still end up with Jeremy Corbyn in number 10, but it's not so much Pete Corbyn as sort of Dick Theresa or Tom <laughs> Theresa. Uh, Part of the problem for all politicians is that the longer they are, particularly a party leader, they just pick up baggage. They just collect bad news and misjudgments and upset people. And it's difficult to, to sustain the idea of the new fresh guy. Yeah, I mean, I think the 2017 election saw a particular set of circumstances because you had a very hubristic prime minister who went to the country and asked for a certain thing. And the public said, you know what, we don't want you. We want to give the establishment a kicking. And it was almost a kind of voting vote face election, wasn't it? It was all very fun and very jolly and, and lots of young people and older people got behind Jeremy Corbyn in, in those weeks and, and had a great time. I don't see those circumstances being repeated again. I think you're right. I think you get um, a kind of fatigue with a leader and, and that excitement won't exist and Glastonbury won't see um, old Jeremy Corbyn again. But, but I also think that Matt's right, that there is an appetite in, out there for 
uh, more left-wing politics than had been assumed in the past that the public would, would accept. And I think Rachel's right to say that um, we shouldn't underestimate how badly the uh, government and Theresa May are doing. And, and although a couple of years ago when I, when I first wrote the book about Jeremy Corbyn, I, I didn't think for a moment he would one day become prime minister. I, I no longer feel that way. I think it's you know, perhaps 50-50, perhaps even tipping towards the 60-40 that he can do it. So although I think we have reached peak Corbyn in terms of the personality cult, I certainly don't think we've seen reach the peak of what he could achieve. Now, does he do the things that he needs to do to, to help him on the way? No, he doesn't seem to be willing to do that. But the way politics is going, perhaps he doesn't need to. Jenny, what do you make of the trying to... It's very difficult to keep up the sustained campaign. Jeremy Corbyn has talked about doing it. He tried to... Every summer he seems to want to go on tours, sort of keep up momentum at the small end. That's difficult, though, isn't it? People want to switch off between elections. They don't want to constantly be on a sort of campaign pussy. Oh, I don't know. I think people love having you know, communal events. That's why they go to football matches every week. And I don't kind of people who go to Corbyn rallies probably think, just as people in America want to go to Trump rallies, they're enjoying participating in something where you can think, I'm on the side of right and here's a good person who's offering me the, the way forward. I, don't, I, I very much doubt that um, it's the rallies that are going to stop happening. I do think um, Corbyn is in an astonishing position because you look at the political landscape and you think, well, the Tories are doing appallingly and there's no alternative leader in sight. So then you sort of down and think, oh my God, but Labour's doing so badly as well and not answering the main question of the day on Brexit. And then you look at the Lib Dems and it's really vanished. So you keep searching round and round and you think, oh my God, they're all, they're all terrible. So who knows which one is going to look strongest over the next six months or a year. And I think anyone who thought that they could make any kind of prediction about who was going to come out well in this political landscape next week, let alone next month or <laughs> in March, would be an absolute fool. I was in New York um, a couple of weeks ago, and I was talking to some um, senior journalists there about what was happening with Trump. And I said to a columnist there, um, what is going to happen next? And he said, my crystal ball is broken. He said, what's going to happen in the UK? I said, my crystal ball is also broken. <laughs> what's so fascinating about Corbyn now is that clearly his party, in terms of Brexit, is wanting to go in a place that he doesn't want to go. He could obviously pick up a tide if he decided to move, but it would go against all his instincts. And we know how obstinate he is, and we'll, we'll know within 24 hours whether he's managed to do a fudge so that the party never gets to vote on whether there should be a second referendum. So he could soar in the polls, so he would not have reached Pete Corbyn, or he could absolutely flail. Do you think it's definitely, obviously the big debate that's happening in the Labour conference is whether or not they should back a second referendum. And do you think they would soar in the polls if they did that? Because actually, wouldn't he upset half of the coalition that he's managed to hold together of Labour leavers and Labour remainers up until now? Well, I'd have thought that until the recent polling. Now, of course, we all know that polling is not that reliable, as we've all discovered to our cost in referendums and elections recently. But the YouGov poll 10 days or so ago showed that Labour would end up with a net gain of one and a half million votes countrywide, which would be just about enough to give it to a majority. They'd win 66 seats on that basis. And then, of course, there's just been the poll over the past couple of days showing that 86% of Labour voters would support a second referendum. So both within the party and within the country, it looks as if that would be a hugely popular thing to do. I might just get to know the sort of um, 
equal um, balance that he's got with me in the polls at the moment. As you've uh, brought up uh, polls, let's take a look at some of the polling. From when Jeremy Corbyn became uh, Labour leader, he was right that less than 20% of people thought that he was uh, he would make the best Prime Minister. What we saw during the general election campaign uh, was he went up almost exactly at the same speed as Theresa May went down. The more of a hash she made of her Nothing Has Changed campaign, uh, the better Jeremy Corbyn did. But what's interesting is that since then, he has gradually, there is a clear trajectory uh, coming down. There's only now 23% of people in the most recent YouGov poll said that Jeremy Corbyn would make the best Prime Minister. 36% said uh, Theresa May, and the overwhelming leader for some time uh, has been don't know uh, uh, on 39%. 39%. Don't know is going up. Don't know is doing very well. Don't, whoever changes their name to don't know will be laughing. Interestingly, there is a similar trajectory on the party voting, which is not as pronounced. And arguably, if you looked at the crisscrossing of the Tory party and the Labour Party, it's essentially a dead heat. It could easily change one way or the other during the the course of a general election campaign. But this was interesting. This was a breakdown of Labour voters, so people who voted Labour in 2017. Asked who do you think would make the best PM? 86% of those people said Jeremy Corbyn in June last year, just after the general election. That's gone down to 51%. So the idea that he needs to build on the, what he secured last year is based on the premise that he's already got those people in the bag, and that's not, that's not the case. I mean, admittedly, almost all of that has gone to... Uh, you don't know as well than Theresa May. Uh, Matt? But, but don't know isn't neither. That's the thing. It's people saying, I'm not engaged with politics at the moment. I just voted in an election last year. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know who will be the best Prime Minister of the two. And when I have to make my mind up, and I'll engage with politics, and I will come to a decision. It's not neither, you know. But, but, but I do think also there was a slightly false thing in the election last year. Where quite a lot of people were voting against the other parties. So I think quite a lot of the people who voted Labour were voting against Theresa May and her hard Brexit. Tories. And the idea for a lot of it that she was going to get a massive majority. And the, yeah. And then also I think some of the people who were voting for Labour, the other way around, were voting against Jeremy Corbyn because they were frightened of, of potential government heat leaves. And I think and we, we, we also know from the testimony of many Labour MPs who didn't support Corbyn that they were actually going out on the doorsteps and saying to people, it's fine, you can vote for Labour and vote for me because it's okay, we won't win. So you're not actually voting for Jeremy Corbyn. So that also inflated um, his sport in some way. And that's, that's just not Rosa, a plausible tactic the next time round, is it? Well, I think he will come under greatest scrutiny. I mean, I think he and his team would argue that, that he gets a hard time from the media. I mean, I think that personally, as a journalist, I would say this, but I think that's sort of part of the... You want to be prime minister? Politician, yeah, yeah. yeah, that you should be scrutinised. And, and the Tories ran a terrible campaign, and they didn't really examine him as, as they could have done, as we have seen through all the stuff that's come out subsequently. Um, and I wonder if, knowing some of the things that we've seen that have been pretty unsavoury, whether the public will, will think of again, and whether he will seem like this sort of um, genial grandfather figure, this wise old man. I don't know. I mean, it, it's going to be... It, it, I have found it very disturbing and unsettling, the anti-Semitism now. It'll be interesting to see whether the British public is upset about that, if that's one of the factors that motivates them, or whether they do pay more attention to their own circumstances, their own financial circumstances, and, and um, as Matt says, that, that austerity is enough, and they want a Labour Party again, because 
Jimmy makes a really interesting point, though, I think, too, that um, the idea that if next time Labour MPs, what are they going to do, these Labour MPs? Can they credibly go out and say, that privately, they'll say quite often that they think Jeremy Corbyn will be a threat to national security as Prime Minister, that they fear what he'd do, they, they genuinely don't want him to be in number 10. What are they going to do between now and the next election? Are they going to stand on the Labour ticket? Are they going to break away? If they do stand on the Labour ticket, what will they say about Jeremy Corbyn? And that, can, that could have a big impact on his reputation and also on Labour's poll rating. Because if, if there was a breakaway, that could also divide the sort of left, centre-left vote. So I think it's, it's much more unpredictable for him than it might look. What do you make of the idea of a group of Labour MPs breaking away? Do you think that's a realistic possibility? Well, I think the first thing to say is in a two-party system, which is what we have with First Past the Post, division is inevitable. You're never going to have two parties that represent the entire spectrum of political opinion. So you are, you are going to get uh, broad churches in both parties. Now, I think that there is a, a section of the Parliamentary Labour Party, people like, for example, Chris Leslie and Shukra Munna, who could never reconcile themselves ideologically with Corbyn being Prime Minister. Therefore, it wouldn't surprise me if they did break away. It would be better for Corbyn and better for the Labour Party if they broke away before a general election, because then they would just lose their seats and that would be the end of it, rather than after, where they could hold a Corbyn government to ransom, effectively, if they needed those votes and those seats to, to have a majority. But then who's representing that sort of strain of political opinion if Labour's supposed to be a broad church? Well, they don't, they don't have to leave. But they're facing all these mandatory re-selection threats. Well, I mean, I don't think it's difficult to keep your constituents on side. You see your constituency Labour Party members on side. I think that there are, um, for example, Kate Hoey would be the subject of a re-selection contest if that, if that rule change passes because of her opinions on Brexit. You know, I think that you have to have some degree of democratic accountability to your CLP. But I don't think that necessarily precludes certain opinions. Well, there seems to be a deep contradiction there. You say that parties are broad churches, and then you say that people who feel as Kudlerby and Chukwu and Muna do, be better if they just left. No, I said if they're, if they're, no, I, I said if they're going to leave, it's better if they leave now. And you'd rather they stayed in and kept on arguing their case for their kind of politics? Well, they can if they like. They're free to do what they like. But <laughs> what would, would you rather? Oh, would I, would I rather? Mm. I, I mean, it's entirely up to them. I don't mind if they want to do that, but I just don't think that they do, can... Do you think parties ought to be broad churches? Well, I think, it's, as I say, it's inevitable with a two-party system and first-past-the-post. The they, they're going to have broad church. wing of the party are feeling increasingly um, unwelcome within the party, and, and they're facing enormous pressure not to express their views. And they're well, no, feeling extremely unpopular within it because of a, a, a small group who are acting against them. I, dis I disagree. I, d I think they're perfectly entitled to express their views. I just think the manner... You don't in think which that's happening to them? They, they, are, they are not being criticised for expressing their views. Everyone's allowed to express their views. They're, they're, they're being criticised because they're trying to actively undermine the Labour Party and therefore prevent a Labour government. That's why they're being criticised, by the membership. The membership won a Labour government. When Jeremy Corbyn was a backbench MP during the new Labour years, there weren't moves by Tony Blair to deselect him and replace him with somebody who was fully paid up for the, to the new Labour way of thinking. Um, That's the whole point of a broad well, church. Well, actually, it can't be a broad church as long as you agree with the vicar. Well, actually... <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 that's not what I'm saying. I mean, MPs, Labour MPs have to reconcile themselves in some way to the constituency Labour Party. There was actually an attempt to deselect Corbyn from within his constituency. They didn't meet the threshold because his constituency Labour Party supports him. And that's the way I think it should be. These are the activists that go out on the doorstep. 
they take the message to the public. You know, there has to be some kind of accountability to members as well. But we also know that one of your key problems is that being accountable to members is not the same thing as being popular with voters. And if you expect to win power, then you can't afford just to be accountable to a small section of the electorate. We're seeing that's exactly what's happening with the Tory party at the moment. They're in hock to their Eurosceptic right wing, which is why the country is in such an almighty mess. And I think it's um, very dangerous if you, if, if you and the Labour Party are making exactly the same mistake. It's why almost everybody that I know, whether they once voted Tory or whether they once voted Labour, is now feeling politically homeless, which doesn't mean they want to join a new centrist party. I don't think that's going to run. But they would like to get their broad churches back again so that they feel that, that um, the sensible moderates have also got a voice and they're not, not being excluded. I think your argument there about the membership being outstep with public opinion might have been more convincing before the last election. But I actually think that the policies... You didn't win. I know, but the policies in that were put forward in that election individually polled overwhelmingly well. Um, but that's not the point. But, but but the policies no, also polled overwhelmingly well before the election individually. And then the public looked at the whole thing together and thought, Actually, we can't all have Christmas cake with cherries every day. You know, it doesn't add up. But also, also in, in, in the end, wasn't Jeremy Corbyn a better politician than Ed Miliband in terms of going out and selling it and creating sure, a Sure, but they're still going win against a completely yeah. divided Tory party with the Prime Minister whose ratings were falling with every single day during that campaign, and they still couldn't get over the line. So I think it's delusory to, to certainly think that Pete Corbyn has necessarily yet to come. But what I don't understand, and I've never really understood from day one of... of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership is, I mean, I understand on one level because he, as you say, is an obstinate man, but it would be so much easier and surely better for the Labour Party for that broad church to be embraced, um, for the moderates to be to be embraced, for, for Labour to be coming here to Liverpool and talk about the next Labour government and not talking about reselection or anti-Semitism. I mean, how can that be a positive thing for the party? How, how can that be a winning strategy? Well, quite. I mean, these are these are surely no one in at the top of Team Corbyn can think that this is the way to achieve power and the way to offer a positive message to the public. Actually, I think I think uh, debate and discussion and difference of opinion at conferences is should be what conferences are for, and it should be where debates and disputes are resolved through democratic means. But the power of conference has been so undermined after over the last two decades. That actually, just it does just become a load of fringe events and people brief in the press. I, I actually think that you've seen in the debate over mandatory reselection. Actually, I mean, I know it's uh, an example that you prefer not to see, but there is the division in the left among Unite and Momentum, yeah. and over Brexit as well. And that debate is ha being had in a comradely way, and it, and it will be resolved at conference. So that's what's really fascinating about this Brexit second referendum thing, because. What's going to happen is there's a sort of meetings tonight, I think, to work out what exactly the motion is that the conference will get to vote on. And, you know, I think it's something like 130 local constituency parties have put in requests to the leadership to say, please, we really want another referendum on Brexit. Uh, and the suspicion, we're gonna, we'll see, we'll, but probably by the time the podcast comes out, we'll know the result. But there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a possibility that what comes back as the actual motion they get to vote on is something very wishy-washy and fudgy. And I don't think that really then is democracy in action and sort of power to the members. And I think there's a real conflict there, because when it's inconvenient for Jeremy Corbyn and the leadership, they actually don't want <laughs> power to the members. Well, there's a, there is an this is actually that... a perfect example of where, the, you know, he's saying on the 
Andrew Marr programme this morning, Tom Watson saying, yes, if the members vote for a second referendum, we'll back it. But what if they don't really get the chance to vote for it? But also, it's, it's just, there is uh, an irony that Jeremy Corbyn has spent years saying that parties should be more democratic, it should be opened up to the members, and then when the members come forward with something which is a bit uncomfortable for him and causes him a problem, uh, you speak to some of the people in the sort of Corbyn camp now, and that's really annoying. It suddenly we can't make confidence do what we wanted them to do. Ah, you want us well, on Tony they, Blair? Maybe it will be a and maybe it will be genuinely democratic, and that would be fantastic. We'll see. But it's, it's high risk, isn't it, Jenny? That if the if the party does back a second referendum, it it plunges the Labour Party back into a conversation. It basically reignites a conversation from two years ago. Where it becomes very backward-looking rather than forward-looking. We don't even know. What a question would be, Len McCluskey talking about not even having Remain on a ballot paper in a second referendum, which I don't think is what the people who want a second referendum, I don't think they're campaigning for a vote where they staying in isn't an option. Well, I think there are two things here. The first is that this Brexit decision, what may or may not happen to us by March, is going to be the most possibly destructive political decision of our lifetimes. The economy will take four decades to recover if we leave under a four brick. A hard Brexit. We, we know that from all the people who've been talking about it at the, at the top of the economy, from the government of the Bank of England down. And so I think Labour has a deep, deep responsibility to think about something other than its own navel and its own narrow political interest at this point. And I thought it was utterly shameful last week that Chequers falls apart in Brussels. The Labour Party does not appear on any of the main political programmes, will not put spokesmen up on Today or Channel 4 News or anything else to say what its view is about where we go forward. It's a total dereliction of the duty of the opposition. And secondly, I think that if, if they now adopted this policy of going for a second referendum, the point is that we would no longer be discussing cakes, cherries and unicorns. We would not be discussing the fact that we would have to be discussing the fact that last time around, during the Brexit campaign, the Brexiteers were able to promise with gay abandon anything they pleased because they all thought, from Boris Johnson and Michael Gove down, they were absolutely convinced that they could not and would not win. So they were able to promise anything they pleased because they knew they weren't going to have to deliver it. That is why they looked like a bunch of shot rabbits on the morning of the referendum. And that's why they all of them went to ground and had nothing to say. If you remember, the only adult who appeared in charge of that situation the following day was the governor of the Bank of England. So now we would be faced not with this idea that oh, you can leave the European Union and get rid of all the bits you don't like and keep all the bits that are splendid and there will be no cost to be paid. We now know that that is rubbish. So if we had a referendum, I think we would need a two-stage referendum in which in the first week, just like the French presidential election, you present the electorate with three choices. You'd say, do you want whatever deal the government has now reached? Do you want a no deal or do you want to stay in the EU? Obviously, one of the leave options would be knocked out. So a week later, you present the country with the question of, this do is, you want a no deal or do you want this... to remain? Or well, Jenny, the remain option might be knocked out. Or well, the country split 50-50. So I very much doubt that that would be the case. And then everybody would have a say and everybody would be voting on the practical realities that lie ahead of us instead of this mythical world in which we can get everything that we want without any cost. But and that's why I think it's really important that Labour open up this debate, or God knows whether they will. But Labour's biggest success of the uh, 2017 general election was to... Fudge oh, everything. Completely fudge everything. <laughs> I mean, it was Keir Starmer's greatest triumph that he yeah. came up with. But this you can't do it endlessly. You can't. Well, you, can, you can, though. When the government is in the mess that it is, I mean, I agree with you, the way they sort of completely vacate the field is outrageous. On Friday, when just before Theresa May gave her 
state which is very, very cross with Brussels. I tweeted saying that as the government just completely falls apart on Brexit, the leader of the opposition was tweeting about a pumping station in Leicester. He tweeted a video which he'd been to see uh, to promote the work, what he wants to do with uh, water companies. And as lots of very cross people pointed out, water bills were a big issue for people and it's a very popular policy and it's not just all about Brexit. But there was, there was a clear sense of the Prime Minister's about to address an ungrateful nation about the latest hash he's made or something. And he's just sort of existing he's in this parallel, parallel world. And there's a, there's a line that comes from Barry Gardner down that if, when your enemy is making a mistake, you don't interrupt them. And I actually, I think if you want to, if you want to reverse this chart, which shows that the people who think you would make a good prime minister is going yeah. down, you do have to step up and, and, and address that. Matt. You'd be stepping up into a context that has been created by the Conservative government because they've messed up the negotiations. So what do you want Labour to do? Turn up now and say, this is what we would take? Because actually, Labour wouldn't be in this position if they were negotiating. We wouldn't be in a position where you know, we're not going to get the deal through Parliament. And we're actually... Because they would squeak through and got because, a Parliament like Theresa May has, he could be in exactly the same position. And his six tests, including all the same benefits, would, as Barry Gard described, but they are bollocks and they don't, they don't work. <laughs> because... because he doesn't have the same hard right Brexiteers in his party that Theresa May does. He is the hard right Brexiteer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, honestly, this is one of the biggest. Is there I mean, any message? Did you discuss Europe with him when you were working? How, of what's his genuine view? He, well, he voted and campaigned for Remain. And he So so his view is his view is that we should have remained in the European Union, although remained unreformed. Yes, well, of course. Well, the, 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 European Union has, the European Union has a lot of uh, problems, right? No one would disagree with that, even if you're massively pro-European Union. Everyone would agree with that, I think. But hang so, on a minute. If he, if he believed we should remain, why didn't he campaign for it? Cause he did. Dur no, he didn't. Because during the election... He went on holiday. During the election, I, I went out... He literally for the, went on holiday. <laughs> during the election, I went out for the Times to spend 24 hours alongside David Cameron as he was campaigning. And he said one the, he was absolutely literally tearing his hair out. He said, we keep saying to Corbyn, we will clear space in the diary, you can have any sort you like, you can make any speeches you please, we'll make sure that nothing conflicts with it, you know, please come out and talk about Brexit. He said, he just won't engage, he won't do it, no, he won't get the Labour vote out. And you know, if anyone would like to come back and tell me any single thing that they remember Corbyn standing up and saying or stumping about, as, as, he, as, he, as he now does about you know allotments or filling stations, so please tell me about it. And I know he didn't want to share a stage with David Cameron and that's his prerogative, but I remember speaking to Alan Johnson at the time who was leading the Labour campaign who had similar frustrations. He kept trying to arrange meetings and was being rebuffed and I mean it's just not the case that he's an enthusiastic Remain well, campaigner. To be honest, I thought the Labour in campaign wasn't a good campaign, but it wasn't run by Corbyn. But it was well, run by Alan Johnson. Maybe it should have been. Maybe, maybe it should have been. I think it would be if there was another referendum. <laughs> I think it would be run by Corbyn and run by Momentum and whatever. And would, so, they, and it would, be better. would they campaign to remain? You see, that's the other fascinating thing is you then, if you did back a, Labour did back a second referendum, then what position does it take? Yes, Do you think Corbyn would, he would have to campaign to remain in that situation? Well, it's a hypothetical question. I think we have to wait until we see what deal the government comes back with. Whether they can get it through Parliament. She might need to extend Article 50 and carry on negotiating, or might have that, the part of the trade-off for being able to extend Article 50 might be another vote, referendum. 
Labour have already said that they will vote down whatever deal she brings back, and now you're saying it depends. Yeah, no, they would vote down Chequers because Chequers doesn't give you exactly the same benefits as. Well, Look, well, it was the Conservative. Well then well then why did why did David Davis say that? Yeah. And why did Liam Fox well, say that? Hold on, hold on, hold on a minute, hold on a minute. He's the Brexit secretary. This is politics. If if you're the government and you're saying wait, and you're the government, you're saying we're gonna get the exact same benefits, it's gonna be the easiest deal to do in history, you hold them to it. And he was proved Wrong. So why would you now be proved right? He was trying to defy gravity. He was trying to break all the rules and pretend he could fly. He couldn't fly. That's why he's crashed and burnt. Why do you think you could fly? You can't have the exact same benefits while leaving. It's when, nonsense. In, in, in theory, you could negotiate a bilateral trade deal with the EU, but they've gone about it the wrong way. In theory, you could, as Canada has done. Yes, and, there, and then you, then you d don't belong to the same single regulatory system and we know about all the non-tariff barriers and the idea that frictionless trade would be absolute garbage on that. And Matt, you must know that. You're an intelligent person. Let's, uh, at the risk of this turning into a, a Brexit <laughs> seminar. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Um, let me posit a counter view, which it might just be the inbuilt optimist in me, the hopes that everything's going to be all right at the end, that despite what happened in Salzburg, Theresa May does get some sort of agreement with the EU because it is in the interest of both sides. She brings it back to Parliament, and in the end, the number of Tory rebels will go down because most of them don't want to push the country off the cliff. And there will be some Labour MPs who, whatever the front bench line is, because they don't want to be seen to be supporting this government plan, there will be some Labour MPs who can't bring themselves to walk through a voting lobby with. Jacob Rees-Mogg and uh, that wing of the Tory party and actually think that a deal is better than no deal. And so we get through this and we leave in March next year. What happens then? How do both parties adjust to, in theory, life after Brexit? And particularly the possibility that Theresa May gets hauled out of Downing Street quite soon after with Jeremy Corbyn's calculation that just let Theresa May muck it up and he can come and clean it all up afterwards. The Tories could re rejuvenate. It does feel as if politics is in limbo. I don't know that uh, so many things are, are put on hold until after Brexit, if or if <laughs> Brexit happens or whatever. Um, so you know, Vince Cable said it that you know he'll go after Brexit. The Labour moderates, whatever you want to call them, are not leaving until after Brexit. The Tory MPs aren't going to move against Theresa May until after Brexit. There's every, a, an awful lot's got to happen in April and May next year to kind of catch up for all the kind of decisions that are being deferred, let alone all any kind of domestic policy that the government's been actual, totally actual ignoring and yeah. governing. Um, but I think you're going to have a sort of... I, I really feel as if the sort of Rubik's Cube has been scrambled, if you like, and everything is kind of is a real mess. All the old tribal allegiances are breaking down, and that's all going to come to a head after March the 29th next year. And I think we genuinely don't know what's going to happen, because I think it depends who wins the Tory leadership contest. If that's a sort of Boris Johnson, Jacob Rees-Mogg 
hard right winger. I think genuinely a lot of a, a chunk of Tory MPs will leave. I can't see Jeremy Corbyn going anywhere by choice fast, but the you know the Labour moderates are then going to have to make their choice. They've got no more excuse for hanging around. Do they do they want to make this man prime minister or not? So I think you could have some kind of reconfiguration. There's all this talk of a new party, lots of you know businessmen with lots of money flocking around. We need to tune with the, the, the national movement. Yes, exactly. <laughs> a couple of people you haven't heard of with loads of money who wants yeah. to take over politics. <laughs> um, Rosa, what do you think about Theresa May? You've written a book about her as well. Is it in her nature to think, well, I've delivered what I said I was going to do, I'll go quietly, or, or having done that, will she think, finally, I can get on with the stuff I'm really interested in? Right at the beginning, when you introduced me, you said, could I compare the two? And actually, they're, they're not from dissimilar backgrounds. You know, They're both sort of middle England, though, of a similar age relatively well-off, dutiful people. Um, They came from different traditions because Theresa May's family, her father was an Anglican vicar, Uh, Jeremy Corbyn's father was a a scientist, and they were quite active Labour activists themselves, but both families had a real sense of duty. And I do definitely see Theresa May as seeing it as her mission, having been elected following the referendum, to, to see it through. One of the big criticisms of Theresa May is that she's not an ideologue. She doesn't have much of an agenda. You know, I think most of the country would quite like to get on with domestic policy once Brexit is out of the way. I don't think Theresa May knows what she wants to do with the country. Um, in the beginning, she had Nick Timothy thinking for her, and, and they came up with almost a coherent plan, but that sort of fell by the wayside quite quickly as she just has been scrambling to deal with each day as a, you know, it's an achievement at the end of the day if she gets through it. I wonder if Jeremy Corbyn is almost similar. Um, for him, it's not Brexit that he needs to get through. It's his mission, rather, to, to transform the Labour Party. I mean, the Corbynistas, I believe, despite what Matt said, I think their big prize is, is Labour. It's not achieving power. It's not achieving government. And if he can get all these changes through conference, if he can solidify Corbynism and, and get rid of the moderates, perhaps, I think Rachel's right, I think perhaps after Brexit, some of those moderates will think about forming their own party. If he can transform the party in his own image, his work here will be done, and I think that will be a time. So I think Theresa May will probably go quite quickly in the spring, and I think Corbyn will take maybe another year or so, but he'll be gone after that. So do we, who do we think will lead the two parties into the next election? Let's go along the panel, and then we'll take some oh. questions. Jenny? I think it could well be Michael Gove. For no. which party? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not because I'm enthusiastic about this proposition, but I mean, you you all have noticed how very carefully Michael has um, positioned himself, agreeing to go along with Chequers, being very, very loyal, the director of communications in Downstreet is a very close friend of his, he's got allies all over the party, he experienced what it's like to have lost power, very shockingly, um, in two stages, first when he got sacked as education secretary, and then when Theresa came in and he was evicted. From the cabinet, and um, he had to make do with being a Times columnist for a while. After he that. did, didn't he? He <laughs> <laughs> was much grander than we were, much more. But, um, but no, I, I, I think he might be somebody. If the party wants a Brexiteer, he's being very cautious and very clever about making alliances across the party in a way that someone like Boris Johnson has utterly failed to do. I mean, Boris absolutely is at home in front of a great crowd, but. In the Commons tea room, he just doesn't bother with it, which means a lot of MPs um, dislike him intensely. And the only reason they may back him is they think he may save their seats. Well, Michael will be presenting himself as, I can save your seats because, you know, I'll, I'll do the Brexit um, true path. And don't worry, P.S., I'll deliver a, a really harder Brexit than we have at the moment. So I think that's a possibility. 
As for Labour, I have no bloody idea. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if, um, sticking with Labour, someone like Emily Thornberry might might triumph. Um, sort of just about palatable to the left, but also acceptable to the moderates. And she's been plugging away there. Um, the, I think the, the members kind of like her. You know, she's one of the few with a bit of oomph to her. So I'm going for Emily Thornberry. This is, a, by the way, wild speculation because I've proved... <laughs> that's all, that's all we're time, doing. That's, that's, uh, that's our job. And for the Tories, I wonder if once Brexit is out of the way, maybe the, the Leavers will just sort of eat themselves up like they did last time around. And I wonder if someone like Jeremy Hunt sort of they'll want a safe pair of hands again. You know, Tories are very sensible when it comes down to it. And they have these, what, what do we meant to say, erotic spasms every now and then. But they... Exotic spasms. <laughs> I'm going to go for Jeremy Hunt and Emily Thornberry. Excellent. And in fact, I'm uh, interviewing Emily Thornberry at the uh, Labour conference this week, which will be a podcast later in the week. So I'll, I shall ask her if she... Fancies, you know, there we go. If you want to launch a leadership bid on the Red Box podcast, <laughs> Rachel, who do you think will lead? The I was going to party? mention Emily Thornberry as well, actually. And um, it's quite interesting. Several of the um, people have been saying they think it should be a woman next. And I think Rebecca Long Bailey's being cited as a sort of John McDonnell favourite candidate. But Emily Thornberry could be more of a broad church person, I guess. On the Tory side, I think Sajid Javid's also an interesting person to watch. I can see a sort of the final two being Sajid Javid against Jeremy Hunt. I just a contest think Boris... to set the nation's <laughs> racing. <laughs> I think Boris is over. I don't know whether that's wishful thinking, but I think it's sort of he's he's made so many enemies in the parliamentary party. They really fed up with him, and in the end, they they do have to decide who gets to the final two to get to the who, the party activists who choose. And it will be fascinating um, to see how he's received at the Tory conference next week. Because yes. last year, he was really unpopular because yeah. he was seen as being disloyal. It'll yeah. be interesting to see how that's going. Really so finally, Matt, who do you think will lead the party into the next election? In the next election, I think Corbyn will be leading Labour. Following Corbyn's leadership, I think it will be a contest between two women on the left of the party. Uh, I would consider Emily Thornberry as being on the left of the party possibly Rebecca Long-Bailey. There's going to be new mechanisms to get onto the ballot paper for the leadership contest. I don't know if you've seen this now, you're going to need 5% of the unions, 5% of the affiliates and all that sort of stuff. So, I mean, it would have to be someone like Emily Thornberry or Re Rebecca Long-Bailey. So, Angela Rayner? Possibly also. Yeah. Yeah. The Tories, I think Sajid Javid will take over from me. Well, we'll hold you all to those uh, predictions because we all know that political predictions are wildly successful uh, these days. Thank you so much for joining us for this special recording of the live podcast. I'm not totally sure we're any clear on whether or not we've reached Pete Corbyn. That's sort of the point of politics. Now we just get together and we assure ourselves that nobody else knows what's going on either. Thank you all for coming. You're already uh, Time subscribers, but for those of you that aren't, do sign up to uh, become Time subscribers. Then you get my brilliant red box morning email, uh, which I go up at five o'clock every morning to write. But uh, for now, my thanks to Jenny Russell, Rose and Prince. Rachel Sylvester and Matt's our cousin. And for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye.